Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm thrilled to have with me today Dr. Mark Bickett, who is the director of our pain fellowship program here at Johns Hopkins and an assistant professor of anesthesia and critical care medicine, obviously with a subspecialty in pain medicine. And Mark and I today are going to do what I think will be a really fun podcast. So we're going to talk about pain pathways, which is something that's very high yield, covered extensively on tests, both the in-training exams and the board exams. Uh, But we're going to do it in an interesting way. Mark came up with some really fun uh, board-style questions. And so the whole thing we're going to do is put some questions out there to the audience. We'll give you a minute to answer them. And then uh, Mark will actually answer them. And we'll go through the correct answer, why it's correct. We'll go through the incorrect answers and what actually uh, we can learn from them. So I think this will both be a great way to learn about pain pathways but also good practice for how to take and think through multiple choice questions and how to study using multiple choice questions. Because I know a lot of folks out there study using question banks, but you have to do that in the right way if you want it to be high yield. So let's do it. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me today. It's fun to have you. All right. I'm also excited to point out that today's episode will be our monthly episode that will be featured on anesthesiologynews.com. As you know, Anesthesiology News is the independent monthly newsletter for anesthesiologists. They've got great multimedia and web-exclusive content and all their archives, which you can find at anesthesiologynews.com. They do a really great job, and check it out. Also, look for this podcast to be featured there. So uh, let's jump right in. What we're going to cover in this topic are the following points. So we're going to talk about nociceptors and nociceptive nociceptive afferent neurons and the wind-up phenomenon. We're going to cover the dorsal horn transmission and modulation of pain. We're going to cover spinal and supraspinal neurotransmission and modulation and opiate receptors. We're going to cover autonomic contributions to pain, visceral pain perception and transmission, We're going to talk about the social, vocational, and psychological influence on pain perception, and we'll talk about gender and age differences in pain perception. Sound good, Mark? That's a good list. I think uh, we have our work cut out for us today. Let's see how we can do. All right. All right. So let's start with a question, Uh, and this is the question. So everybody out there, get ready. Here we go. Which of the following types of sensory information is transmitted via type C primary afferent fibers? A, sharp pain. B, burning pain, C, cold, D, sharp pain and burning pain, E, sharp pain, burning pain, and cold. And take a minute and make a commitment. What would you say the answer is? All right, Mark, tell us what the answer is. All right. Well, for those of you who are thinking B, burning pain, you are correct. Nice. Yeah, I know. Why? Well, I think you know we're we're having a lecture on pain pathways, and those of you who chose C, cold, your intuition probably would have told you, well, would we ask a question about pain pathways and have it answer not include pain? That would probably be a good tip off. But you can't really use that whenever you're out there in the in the testing world in the real world. We have type C primary afferent fibers, and I think you may remember from back in the neurology rotation of medical school that these fibers don't have specialized nerve endings. They're a little bit smaller, and so they transmit signals a little bit more slowly than the other nerve fibers that are out there. So these fibers are typically associated with that burning pain sensation. It's slow to come on, and these are slower type fibers. So type C, primary afferent fibers, do the burning pain. And we can contrast that. uh, The other option out there that's a big uh, fiber with pain pathways are A-delta fibers. 
Now, some people may remember these are myelinated, right? Remember, they have nodes of Ranvier in between, uh, help help have saltatory conduction go on, basically, meaning the impulses can travel travel faster. So already A-delta fibers are faster than primary afferent fibers, and those are the ones that do the sharp pain sensations that are out there. Great. Now let me ask you something, Mark. So uh, the type C fibers are unmyelinated. That's right. Okay. And the A-delta are myelinated, and that's why the A-delta are faster. That's one of the reasons why the A-delta are faster. That's right. So the speed has to do with both the myelination as well as the diameter of the neuron. Okay. In these cases, the uh, myelination makes the A-deltas faster than the C-fibers. Gotcha. All right. So that's great. So sharp pain, A-delta, myelinated, faster, which makes sense. It's sharp. It's that pinprick you feel right away. That's right. And then the burning pain comes on a little more slowly, uh, and and then um, that's carried by the type c uh, primary afferent fibers. Okay. Absolutely. Now you made a great point and I want to emphasize it, which is that when you're taking multiple choice tests, which we all take all the time, you can get, you can make your chances better to get the answer right. Even if you know nothing about the right answer by thinking about what might not be possible. So like Mark said, cold doesn't make sense, right? Cold isn't pain. And so if you had to get rid of something, you could get rid of C, which was cold, and E, which included cold, that would have left you with just three instead of five choices, and now you've increased your chances of getting it right quite a bit. So don't just give up if you don't know the answer. Look for ways you can narrow down your choices and improve your chances of getting a That's a great point. A right answer. Yeah, absolutely. Great. All right, let's move on to another question. Mark, uh, this next question is, which of the following illustrates the concept of modulation? And the answer choices here are A, a noxious stimulus is converted to an action potential and propagated by neurotransmitters. B, a peripheral noxious stimulus is transmitted to the thalamus via the spinal cord. C, a peripheral noxious stimulus is processed in the limbic system where it elicits an emotional response. D, a noxious stimulus is modified by inhibitory and excitatory neural inputs. Take a minute. All right. Make a choice in your head. Commit. And Mark, what's the right answer there? All right. So this question relates to modulation, which is probably most appropriately defined as having a noxious stimulus being modified by inhibitory and excitatory neural inputs, or D. Great. So this question really relates to the essence of pain pathways and the pain transmission. And actually, each one of these answers relates to a pretty critical part of the pathway that is commonly divided up into four different pieces. And so the question we focused on was modulation, or the, in essence, um, a change in terms of a signal coming up through perhaps the spinal cord, and then that signal being changed by neural inputs. And that's where that inhibitory and excitatory uh, phenomenon happens, uh, where you can either enhance a painful signal or you can inhibit a painful signal. And that's something you can pretty commonly think of. For example, like uh, if you have a hand that's hurting you and then your younger brother comes and punches you in the shoulder, all of a sudden your hand doesn't hurt that much. Right. Now, is that an example of modulation? I think it illustrates the point in perhaps a little less specific manner. Right. Totally. um, So why don't we dig through some of the other answers and just unpack them because I think it's pretty high yield to focus on each one of these steps and understand um, what is happening. Absolutely. So the first one was a noxious stimulus is converted to an action potential and propagated by neurotransmitters. So what is that process? Great. So this process is called transduction. And this really is one of the first elements that ends up 
happening in terms of the pain pathway process. If you think about a stimulus that's outside the body, and this could be a painful stimulus, such as uh, having a sharp toothpick uh, poked on the skin, or like a feather uh, rubbed on the skin, that stimulus, that mechanical action has to be changed into something that the nerve can then transmit on. And that's that action potential, which then is uh, uh, communicated by using neurotransmitters in our body. What are the neurotransmitters commonly used? Things like norepinephrine, um, GABA, um, even um, glutamate are examples of neurotransmitters involved in the pain transmission pathway. Great. All right. So that's transduction. B was a peripheral noxious stimulus is transmitted to the thalamus via the spinal cord. What is that? Great. So here we've seen a signal that's made its way to the spinal cord and then essentially ascends, goes up to the brain in that special region, the thalamus. And no, no, no uh, joking aside, it involves the signal being transmitted. We call this transmission. Okay. It makes sense. <laughs> Trying to keep things simple here for us. It's always good. Easy to remember. All right. So transmission is when it's transmitted from the spinal cord to the thalamus. That's right. All right. And transduction was how it got to the spinal cord in the first place. Transduction was really that, that element, yeah, exactly, of you have the signal on the outside of the body that has to come in somehow. How do we kind of change that uh, non-nerve stimulus into something the body understands through the nerve pathways? Great. All right. And C was a peripheral noxious stimulus is processed in the limbic system where it elicits an emotional response. And this is called perception. Perception really happens whenever we have these higher order processes in the brain. We say higher order, meaning that um, it's not just a simple communication of one nerve along a pathway, that there's some processing that's happen happening. Um, the limbic system is clearly involved in our emotional response based on uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging studies. Those are the, also called fMRI studies, basically fancy words that let us see activity in the brain. And in a certain region, the limbic system, we know that it's involved in pain processing and sometimes can bring about that emotional response. For example, you have pain and it makes you very upset that you have have the pain. That's an example of perception happening. Great. All right. So those are four important um, pathways. So now let's uh, move to another question. In humans, what is the main pathway for nociceptive input into the brain? And the options are A, corticospinal tract, B, spinothalamic tract, C, spinocerebellar tract, D, limbic system, E, rubrospinal tract. Take a minute. Make a choice in your head and mark. I know spinal tracts are some of the most favorite topics among medical students and trainees of all time. Here, we're talking about the main pathway for nociceptive input, and the answer will be B, spinothalamic tract. All right, that sounds familiar. I, I'm thinking back to that first year of med school. Dan Lowenstein and Andy Josephson were the professors of the, of the brain, mind, and behavior uh, a, tr a course that we took, and I remember the, that, that name, spinal thalamic tract. Uh, so let's go over the other ones um, and what they do. Great. And so I think this is really where a strategy for understanding all the tracts, if you have trouble with your anatomy, the good news is many of these tracts identify where the starting portion is and where the ending portion is. And I think it's good to break them up that way in case you find yourself in a high-stakes testing environment mm -hmm. and say, oh my goodness, I've forgotten all of what I knew about pain pathways, let me see if I can figure this out. Typically, they start off by the first portion of the of the word that's there, tells about where the tract is starting, and then the second 
uh, part of the word tells about where the tract is projecting to. So, for example, the answer here was spinothalamic tract. We're typically going from the spinal cord up to the thalamus. And those two words, the spino for spinal cord and thalamic for thalamus, tell us that that's the case. What are some of these other answers that were there? Corticospinal tract. Well, just by using that same analogy, we can tell that the cortical area, or up in the brain, down to the spinal cord, or the spinal area there, makes up the corticospinal tract. And so, essentially, we have a descending system here that's not going up to the brain, but is instead coming down. So that one's not going to be the right answer there. And what does that one do, Mark? What is the corticospinal tract? So the corticospinal tract is essentially giving some uh, input or thought from the cerebral cortex down through um, essentially where the uh, spinal columns are. Great. And are those motor or sensory pathways? What kind of pathways are those? So corticospinal tract, this is for voluntary motor control of the body and the limbs. So you tell your finger to point, and it points. You hold a pen and write, it writes for you. That's the corticospinal tract. Great. All right. We talked about spinal thalamic. How about spinal cerebellar? Is that a real tract? And if so, what does that do? Yeah, so the spinal cerebellar tract is a real tract, and basically it's taking input up from the spinal cord, then up to the cerebellum. We know the cerebellum is involved in our motor uh, skills and coordination as well as processing that's there. Um, the next answer was limbic system mm-hmm. D. And we've already mentioned how the limbic system is involved in the emotional processing. And so most answers that are going to uh, traditionally favor this will involve something about uh, emotional aspects of pain. And if you chose this as the main pathway for nociceptive input, you'd be a working a little upstream from where this is because we know that the spinothalamic tract then does project to the limbic system after this. So you'd be close, but not quite. Okay. Finally, our, I think our last one here was the rubrospinal tract. Um, in essence, uh, again, another descending uh, system here. Not one of the descending pain pathways, though, that typically um, helps to inhibit pain. For that, we think the descending pain pathways largely evolve out of the other areas of the brain, the periaqueductal gray space, or the vo- rostral ventral medial medulla. Those are fancy words for just other portions of the brain where we have I- inhibitory pain pathways. And Mark, the rubrospinal tract, is that motor or sensory? So this is another motor tract similar to the corticospinal tract that helps with voluntary movement. Great. All right. And then you mentioned those other descending pain pathways, the periaqueductal gray and the rostral medial medulla, um, in case people uh, hear those and need to know what they are. All right. Let's go to another question. Which of the following is true about the dorsal horn of the spinal cord? A, cells from lamina 1 and 2 project to the hypothalamus. B, neurons of the spinothalamic tract synapse first in lamina 2. C, lamina 2 is found in the thoracic segment of the spinal cord only. D, discharge from lamina 1 decreases as noxious stimulus increases. E, wide dynamic range neurons are located predominantly in lamina 2. Take a minute and make your commitment. And... Mark, what's the right answer there? Well, our right answer for this one, talking about the dorsal cord of the spinal cord, is that neurons of the spinothalamic tract synapse first in lamina 2. So here we're talking a little bit about our neuroanatomy when it comes to these pain pathways. 
And what you should picture in your mind essentially is a cross-section of the spinal cord. Essentially, it's an oval shape, and in the middle is essentially an, an X. Um, we're here in Baltimore, home of Under Armour. It also looks kind of like the Under Armour sign nice. of, of the X that's there. No, we're, Unfortunately, we don't have corporate sponsorship, but maybe we get a nice plug-in uh, plug with that anyway. One day. That's right. So whenever you look at that oval with the X on it, um, the top portion of that typically is the posterior aspect of the body, and the bottom is towards the front or the anterior aspect. And there's this idea that those portions of the um, Under Armour logo or the X that's there are divided up into things called lamina. It's named after this guy, Rexed, who discovered the lamina uh, decades ago. And what, essentially what he noted were that different neurons have different locations within portions of the spinal cord. And the pain-related neurons are typically in 1, 2, and 5 when it comes to looking at the lamina. So that's why the neurons of the spinal thalamic tract, synapse first and lamina 2, is the most appropriate answer among those that are there. And again, A, and A delta and C fibers, which we spoke about earlier, the main mediators of the pain pathway, typically come into laminas 1, 2, and 5. Okay. The, the other trivia that's out there and just other keyword that you may see on tests relate to this concept called the substantia gelatinosa. Mm -hmm. What's that? That's a great question. It sounds familiar, Mark. Yeah, right? And it turns out the substantia gelatinosa is the same area that we're talking about here when we're describing laminas 1, 2, and close to 5. It was initially seen as a gelatinous substance when they've done these cross-sections of the spinal cord. And it also is commonly referred to in some of the pain literature as being an area where these nerves come in and synapse. And so for all things being similar, when you're taking these tests, substantia gelatinosa and laminas one and two are essentially kind of overlapping terms for the same region of the spinal cord cross-section that we're talking about. Great. Now, let me ask you, uh, let's say the pain, you know, I, I, I don't know, I stub my toe, right? And that pain signal is going from my toe from those A-delta fibers in my toe to my spinal cord. And then is that first synapse in the spinal cord, what we're talking about in lamina 2, or does it make a second stop in lamina 2? So when you have that pain uh, input from the periphery and you have that nerve that basically is coming up, its first synapse will then be in... Lamina 2. Okay, so that's the first synapse it makes when that's it enters right. the spinal cord. And so we, we usually consider those to be, and you remember this term from before, the first order neurons that mm -hmm, are out there. Mm -hmm. Because again, it's the first time it's coming into synapse with some area of the body, and it's going to do that in the spinal cord. And then eventually at some point in time, it will likely cross over or decusate is that wonderful formal term that right. your uh, both of our mentors uh, loved to instill on us about that crossing over that happens right. um, along the along the spinal cord before then going up and these fibers go up and typically go to the thalamus because it's the spinothalamic tract. Right. So we're talking about test taking strategy. That's the whole reason the first answer A was not correct. Cells from lamina one and two project to the hypothalamus. Well, it turns out if you take out the hypo, you'd have a correct answer there. They, okay. they project to the thalamus. Great. And if you forgot how to remember that, just remember the spinothalamic tract starts in the spinal cord, goes up to the thalamus. Right. That's helpful. All right. How about C? Lamina 2 is found in the thoracic segment of the spinal cord only. Yeah. So anytime you see a, a, a test answer that has only in it, you have to be really careful and mm -hmm. either know 100% or have suspicion it's not the right answer. And it turns out in this case, lamina 2 is found in other segments as well. So portions of the cervical segment as well as the lumbar segment do have lamina 2 regions in them and it's not just exclusively to the thoracic segment. 
Great. And D was discharge from lamina one decreases as noxious stimulus increases. Great. And so here it's 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 a counterintuitive statement because it's wrong. Discharge would increase as noxious stimulus increases in lamina one, lamina two, lamina five as well, uh, depending on that painful input. And that's why answer to D is not correct. Great. And then finally, wide dynamic range neurons are located predominantly in lamina two. Are wide dynamic range neurons real? So wide dynamic range neurons are real and they're an important uh, type of uh, neuron involved in pain transmission. We'll talk about them a little bit later. Um, They're not located predominantly just in lamina 2, and so that's one of the reasons why this would not be the right answer. Great. And so what would be the right answer? Where are these wide dynamic range neurons found? So most of the information points that wide dynamic range neurons are located deeper than just lamina 1 or 2. So this would be laminas 4, 5, and even up from there. Great. All right, let's move on to another question. Which of the following is the definition of pain transduction? A, the point at which sufficient pain's transmitting stimuli has reached the brain. B, the conversion of chemical information into electrical impulses that move towards the spinal cord. C, the conscious experience of discomfort when pain threshold is reached. D, the phase during which stimuli move from peripheral nerves toward the brain. Take your pick and mark. What's the right answer there? So pain transduction, the conversion of the chemical information into electrical impulses that move towards the spinal cord. So we're revisiting just a little bit about these different stages of the pain transmission process. And that was B. And that was B. Okay. Yep. You got it. All right. So conversion of chemical information into electrical impulses that move towards the spinal cord. All right. And so... How does that differ from our other answer choices? Let's see. The point at which sufficient pain transmitting stimuli has reached the brain. So is there another term for that? That was choice A. Yeah, choice A. That's another way to describe pain threshold or the threshold at which you can feel pain. One way to think about this one is, okay, you have, imagine uh, you have a dial that gives you a a stimulus that's painful, and you turn that dial up. For some people, you won't feel anything at the lower end of that, just like you sometimes with a stereo, you won't hear anything. But as you turn it up, you'll eventually get to a threshold at which you can hear something and at which you could feel pain as well, and that's the pain threshold. So is that so when I heat up soup in the microwave and I go to take that bowl out of the microwave, sometimes I, I pick it up and it feels like I can carry it just fine, and halfway to the table, my fingers start to burn, and I want to drop the bowl. Is that because I've reached the pain threshold? That's right. Okay. Yeah, that's a great analogy. All right, great. I'll have to do better to use potholders. All right. Got to so, keep those fingers protected, <laughs> That's Jed. right. That's right. All right. B, we talked about that was the right answer. C was the conscious experience of discomfort when pain threshold is reached. What is that called? All right. Anytime you're hearing about higher order processes, including consciousness, you want to be going to perception here. And really, perception is that experience of discomfort when the pain threshold is reached um, at a conscious level. Great. And then D was the phase during which stimuli move from peripheral nerves toward the brain. If you thought this was transmission, you'd be correct because that is exactly what's described by that. Great. Perfect. All right. Next question, Mark. You are describing neuronal plasticity and spinal modulation to a patient in the pain clinic. Which phenomenon is associated with central sensitization? Is it A, the gate control theory of pain, B, low threshold stimulation, C, A beta fiber inhibition, D, wind-up, E, depletion of substance P from sensory nerves? 
make your choice, and we'll go to Mark for the answer. All right, we've got a lot of good answers to choose from here. And if we're thinking about a phenomenon associated with central sensitization, the answer is going to be D, wind-up. Okay. So tell me about wind-up. What, what exactly is that? Tell me more. Yeah, what is wind-up? Well, we had studies in the laboratory setting, and it's been shown also in some human clinical observations as well. You can take a painful stimulus and apply it to, say, an area of your forearm. Say you're going to take a pin, painful pinprick and do that, and you do it once, and you wait a couple seconds, and you do it again, and you do it again. Well, if in a normal circumstance, after you applied that painful stimulus, you would feel the same amount of pain after each uh, exposure to the toothpick. Okay. With wind-up, though, every other time you're introducing the toothpick after that first one, the level of pain is actually going up. And that's essentially a clinical correlate to what we see in a laboratory setting where we apply a stimulation to a nerve that has been damaged or is in a painful state. And, uh, or I guess the, perhaps the better word to say would be we have a nociceptor that's activated. And when a wind-up phenomenon happens, essentially we have a s- stimulation of that nerve. And when these stimulations are coupled together in time and happen one after another, instead of the nerve just firing at the essentially same level, um, the rate of amplitude that the nerve fires with is increased every time when these are put close together. Okay. And, and that's the phenomenon known as wind-up, because we're essentially winding up with every extra stimulus, the amount of uh, response to that nerve is going up every time. Got it. And, and so, go th- This is observed, yeah, I think you were going to say, okay, does this relate to central sensitization? That's exactly what I was going to ask. Yeah, that's a, that's a wonderful point. And so, absolutely, we know in central sensitization, um, we essentially have an issue with the nerves in terms of um, how they're processing pain, and they're doing so in a strange way, an aberrant way. And so, in addition to seeing individuals who have hyperalgesia or allodynia, um, both as a uh, basic science phenomena in the laboratory setting, but also in certain patient populations, we'll see this phenomenon of wind-up that happens as a marker of central sensitization. And what, tell me, what is central sensitization? That's, what's a good definition for that? Yeah, so um, we essentially say uh, another way to describe central sensation is where our, we have nerves that essentially are activated in an aberrant state. They're communicating improperly. And they're uh, thresholds with which they normally feel pain or process these signals are altered in a way that leads them to communicating towards the brain um, and passing on more signals related to pain than they otherwise would. Okay. So it's kind of like the being more sensitive than usual. Is that why it's called sensitization? So you're more sensitive than normal when it comes to that. So for example, we talked about pain threshold and your threshold at which you normally feel pain sometimes goes down. Mm -hmm. Also things that are not normally painful can become painful. And this relates to that uh, notion of allodynia. And then with hyperalgesia, it's also there as well. Things that are typically painful are even more painful than they are um, normal, normally or otherwise. Great. All right, let's look at the other options. So A was gate control theory of pain. What is that all about? Great. So in 1967, there were two gentlemen, Melzack and Wall, who came up with this wonderful notion of gate control theory of pain. And basically this was um, a paradigm by which they noted that if you had a stimulus at the skin and it was a certain kind of stimulus through the A delta fibers, 
that this could sometimes inhibit the processing of pain through C fibers. So the gate control theory of pain described it almost like, well, if we activate the A delta fibers, it's almost like we just close the gate on C fibers. Now, we, we know today that pain processing is a much more rich and dynamic endeavor than just closing a gate. But this set the pain field ablaze at the time and led towards further discovery and the eventual use of spinal cord stimulation a couple years later and um, really revolutionized, I think, our per perception of it, even though today we recognize the theory has some limitations to how it's applied. Okay. Now, is this... I could be totally off here, but is this why we rub things that are sore? Or that, like, if I get hit by a baseball in my arm and then I rub it, is that what I'm doing essentially is trying to activate those other fibers to try to blunt the pain? That's right. You could be considered to have an application of the gate control theory of pain uh, as stated back in, in the 60s by Melzack and Wall. Great. And putting that into practice uh, in response to your baseball injury. Uh, yeah. I have no idea why I reached for the baseball injury. I'm not really getting hit by many baseballs uh, in my life Spring today. training's upon <laughs> us, right? That's so right. One day. Yes. All right. So that's the gate control theory. Yep. B was low threshold stimulation. Uh, what is that about? So low threshold stimulation. We have um, some applications in the pain field like uh, transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation or TENS devices that go on the skin. Um, these essentially provide some stimulation of the skin that acts in a manner somewhat similar to the A-delta fibers, but it's just a little different um, and provide some low threshold stimulation here. Um, this really doesn't have much to do with central sensitization itself, which is why it's not the right answer. Great. All right. And then C was A-beta fiber inhibition. Great. So A-beta fiber inhibition, this can happen when you uh, activate the A-beta fibers and um, essentially use them to kind of block the C fibers as it relates to what we just talked about with the gate control theory of pain, um, but again, is not related to aspects of central sensitization. Now, we haven't talked, I don't think, about A-beta yet. We talked about the A-delta. What do A-beta fibers do? So A-beta fibers are much more involved with just general touch. We talked about A-deltas in terms of the pain process, but they're myelinated fibers that are, again, um, you know, f faster than A-delta fibers um, in terms of their conduction speed um, and, again, involved in the just general sensory process. Gotcha. So actually, with my baseball analogy, when I'm rubbing my arm, I'm not creating pain, so I'm not stimulating pain pathways. I'm probably stimulating A-betas, right, from the touch of the rub. That's a great point, and part of it depends on how hard you're rubbing your shoulder. You're okay. pretty muscular guy. Right. I could be. And mad. so I made the assumption that actually you were just injuring your arm by pushing so hard. Totally. And that would have worked too. Like your theory of if your brother punches you in the arm uh, when you've hurt your leg. That's right. Uh, but in this case, probably the rubbing uh, if, <laughs> as lightly as we can do would be a betas, but still gate control. The idea is you're stimulating other fibers to um, limit the uh, transmission of the pain. That's right. Okay. And then we talked about D wind up, which was the answer. And then E depletion of substance P from sensory nerves. Ah, uh, substance P, one of our old friends we probably don't remember as much. I certainly don't, but tell me about it. It's an excitatory neurotransmitter. And so here um, we really don't have any um, data right now to suggest that we have changes with our neurotransmitters with central sensitization. Um, but just keep in mind, substance P is one of those um, neurotransmitters that leads to excitation along the uh, pain uh, transmission pathways that are out there. Great. All right. Let's move to another question. Which of the following statements is incorrect about sensory afferent neurons? A, the order of conduction velocity is A beta greater than A delta greater than C fibers. B, sensory axons regularly have spontaneous firing activity. 
CA-beta nerve terminals have specialized nerve endings. D-glutamate is an excitatory amino acid released in the superficial dorsal horn. All right, take your pick. Mark, tell us which is correct. All right. The correct answer is sensory axons regularly have spontaneous firing activity. And I would because that's incorrect. That's the confusing thing about this. The marker should be going off left and right. When you hear that word, which of the statements is incorrect, you're going to have three that are good or three that are correct and one that's not. And we're looking for that answer that's a little different than the others. Right. So you, the one you mentioned, B, sensory axons regularly have spontaneous firing activity, is the only one of these that is not true. That's correct. And so it turns out if you do uh, laboratory-based studies where you take nociceptive neurons, um, you study them both in a normal state and then in, in a state in which they're injured, when you check them in their normal state, they don't normally have spontaneous firing activity. They're normally quiet. And um, that is something that's been shown in uh, different animal models, um, and we perceive to be true in humans as well. Okay. Uh, And so what about when they're injured? Do they then have spontaneous firing? That's right. The spontaneous firing really ticks off right after an injury. Um, In most cases, it will slowly resolve over time. Um, But there are some other cases where it will remain persistent. Um, And so that spontaneous firing activity is a marker of nerve injury. Gotcha. All right. And then how about A, the order of conduction velocity is A beta greater than A delta greater than C fibers. I guess we've covered that. That's the order of of speed of those three. That's right. We mentioned that a couple times. The easy way to remember this one for A beta, A delta, and C is um, some kind of a quasi mashup of alphabeticalness that's out there where, you know, if you take your A beta and you perceive that to be in order before A delta, that, you know, you just put them right in order and the fastest to slowest right there. Yep. A a, A, B, I guess, if you were filing, something that started with A, B would come before something that started with A, D, which would come before something that started with C. Very nice. Got it. All right. How about C? A, beta nerve terminals have specialized nerve endings. That is true. All right. That is true as well. Specialized nerve endings. What are these things that we're talking about? Yeah, what are they? Well, if we're talking about a, uh, a uh, you know, a lot of different nerves have different differential nerve endings. A beta ones, um, do you remember those uh, Merkel's corpuscles? Or Ooh, Pisinian, you're really uh, making me reach back I here, know. dusting off the uh, memories. That's right. Those are examples of specialized nerve endings that are out there, and those are specific to the A betas as well. And so that's why that one is correct. Okay. And then glutamate is an excitatory amino acid released in the superficial dorsal horn is correct. That's right. Glutamate is another excitatory amino acid. We can do a little quiz right here. What was the other excitatory amino acid we asked about before? Now that I can remember because it was a few minutes ago, not first year of med school, was substance P. Excellent. This test retest is the best way to increase your knowledge. I'm ready. Sign me up for a pain, pain, pain fellowship. All right. Here we go. All right, so excitatory um, neurotransmitters, we've mentioned glutamate and substance P. Any other big ones people should remember? Besides glutamate and substance P, aspartate is one of the other excitatory uh, neurotransmitters that's out there. And then, of course, if we're talking about the excitatory, you've always got to have have that, uh, that sister cousin, the inhibitory neurotransmitters. Yes, and so what are the inhibitory uh, main neurotransmitters we want people to know about? Yeah, the two big ones out there, if you want to keep at the tip of your tongue, are GABA and also glycine. Okay, good. So the three, excitatory, glutamate, aspartate, and substance P, inhibitory, GABA, and glycine. You got it. Great. All right, let's move on to another question. To which Rexed laminae in the spinal cord do most nociceptive neurons send signals? 
A, 1, 2, and 3, B, 1, 2, and 5, C, 3, 4, and 6, D, 7, E, 9. All right, we, I think we've covered this. So if you were, if you were present for the first uh, half of this podcast or the first half an hour or so, you should get this right. So make your pick. And Mark, what did we say? You're absolutely right. So we're talking about nociceptive neurons. This is going to be to laminate 1, 2, and 5. Great. So B, B would be correct. All right. You got it. Anything to cover there? I, I assume the other ones just aren't correct. Did they go up to, not, uh, to uh, oh, I guess that final one, I said nine, but it was actually four. Yeah, that's right. There are actually 10 Rexed laminae in total, as originally described, and that we use for the classification now. We've already mentioned about the, you know, substantia gelatinosa being towards the uh, laminae one and two in that general area. Um, you should know, you know, C fibers, as we've mentioned, come into one and two. The A delta fibers are primarily coming into two and five, but have a little bit of overlap with some other areas too. So that's why typically if we're talking about nociceptive neurons that play an important role with pain processing, we've mainly been focusing on one, two, and five. Okay, great. Great. All right. Next question. A patient presents with visceral pelvic pain secondary to radiation therapy for rectal cancer. Which of the following interventions is most likely to relieve this patient's pain? Is it A, a celiac plexus block, B, a lumbar sympathetic block, C, bilateral pudendal nerve block, or D, superior hypogastric plexus block? Take your pick. This, by the way, common to see these kind of questions. They love to ask about these blocks and what you should do, which block you should do. So, Mark, tell us which is the correct one. All right. So, in this case, for uh, pelvic pain from rectal cancer, the answer we're looking for here is D, superior hypogastric plexus block. All right. And so, why? What is that doing? So um, we have a, essentially a bundle, a plexus of nerves that sit in front of our vertebral bodies that through which um, some pain pathways go through, in particular for innervation of um, our abdominal viscera and our rectal viscera. And so the superior hypogastric plexus block really is corresponding to the pain described in this prompt in the rectal area and also areas that higher um, in essentially the end portion of the colon. Um, what are some of the other answer options here? A, celiac plexus block. This is a mainstay, and you, I don't know, probably remember this from your days in residency. I certainly remember hearing about it. I'm not sure I've ever done one. All right. Well, this this um, is particularly important for individuals who have pancreatic cancer, mm-hmm. pancreatic cancer pain, but also can be employed for cancers essentially that go from um, the um, distal portion of the stomach all the way to the um, hepatic flexure of the colon. Um, and if there's cancer that's involved in that territory, typically the innervation is going to go through the celiac plexus. And it's a reasonable consideration if we're trying to um, help avoid individuals' side effects with opioid medications or trying to relieve pain there. Okay. So we've so far said the superior hypogastric plexus is going to cover anything from the descending colon down through the rectum. Is that right? Essentially from, uh, yeah, we believe it goes from the um, hepatic flexure with the colon then down to the rectum. Okay. And then the celiac plexus is going to be above that. So from the pancreatic uh, for the distal stomach through pancreas down through the hepatic flexure. Yep. Great. All right. And then what about a lumbar sympathetic block? That was the answer of choice B. So lumbar sympathetic block, this block is also in the same region of the body around the lumbar vertebral bodies. But this is typically indicated for individuals who have a different diagnosis other than cancer. In particular, individuals who have sympathetically mediated pain. That could be complex regional pain syndrome, pain that's out there. This could also be for individuals who have pain 
that's due to vasoconstriction. And what's an example of that? Even peripheral vascular disease could be one of them, um, but other diseases in which um, blood vessel tightening is primarily causing ischemic type pain. Okay. And then what about bilateral pudendal nerve block? That was well, nice. certainly for pudendal neuralgia, it's kind of a clear giveaway there. Okay. But um, this person's pain is not as superficial and um, isn't clearly lined up with that nerve distribution um, to suggest that a pudendal nerve block would be helpful. Okay. So the pudendal nerve blocks are going to be for more superficial pain in the pudendal nerve distribution. And remind me, what is the pudendal nerve distribution? So the pudendal nerve carries sensation from the external genitalia of both males and females, as well as the skin around the anus and the perineum. And here, uh, it's a little different than um, pain that we believe is from rectal cancer for this patient's visceral pelvic pain. Great. All right. Now, the other thing that'll uh, be good to cover, we'll get to in this next question, which is going to be location of this stuff. So let's do this question. The patient returns to clinic to undergo the procedure to relieve her pain. The radiology technician asks, what anatomical target you have for the block? What is your response? Now, remember, this is a superior hypogastric plexus block. And what is the anatomical target? Is it A, L2, B, L3, C, L4, D, L5, or E, the sacral hiatus? What do you think? Mark, let us know. What's the answer? All right. The right answer here is D, L5, corresponding to the fifth lumbar vertebral body. We're talking about, again, a superior hypogastric plexus block, and this bundle of nerves, which is also called that plexus, sits right in front of the lumbar vertebral body um, on the anterior surface. Now, we typically approach it from the back side of the patient or the posterior side and then have uh, some needles that come in, uh, either from one side or both sides, depending on the approach, right in front of the L5 vertebral body that's there. Great. All right. So that, and you're doing this obviously under flora, right? So you're actually counting to figure out where. That's you right. Are. You probably want some type of radiologic guidance. Fluoroscopy is is very common. You can also do this under um, CT guided okay. approaches as well. All right. And so the superior hypogastric plexus L5 is your landmark. Now, are there? You mentioned L2, L3, and L4, and the sacral hiatus. Are those uh, landmarks for other uh, blocks, or are those just uh, false? choices. So those certainly uh, can correspond to other targets depending on what type of block and the approach that you're taking. The question just before this had alluded to uh, other answer possibilities like lumbar sympathetic block. And for that one, if you can only choose one level to do a lumbar sympathetic block, I think most practitioners would select the third lumbar vertebral body or L3. The uh, sympathetic uh, lumbar sympathetic chain lies on just to the lateral side on both sides of L3. And so if you need to block, uh, provide uh, a lumbar sympathetic block for complex regional pain syndrome of someone's right leg, um, you then you would go to the right side of the L3 uh, vertebral body. Now, you also see some individuals who have trained uh, in years past who uh, may do the inferior portion of L2 and superior portion of L4, but in general, if you can only choose one, L3 is a good one to choose from. Okay. How about the celiac plexus block? So for the celiac plexus block, you'd have to go up just a little bit, and you can kind of think in your mind, well, we started with the superior hypogastric plexus, and we marched up just a little bit on the lumbar vertebral bodies to L3 for the lumbar sympathetic block. Mm-hmm. Well, we'd go up two more levels to get to the area where we typically go for our celiac plexus blocks, and that would be around L1 or the first lumbar vertebral body. 
Great. All right. And then the last uh, answer choice on this current question was sacral hiatus. What do we think? What is that related to? When do we look for the sacral hiatus? Well, that's a great question. So the sacral hiatus we typically will use during caudal epidural injections. These can be done both in the pediatric world, um, in particular, kids coming in for surgery. Also in the adult world, if we have individuals who um, have epidural adhesions and we need to do a lysis of adhesions, we can do an approach through the sacral hiatus. We can also just give a caudal epidural steroid injection which isn't as uh, popular in terms of an injection choice these days if we're able to do either an interlaminar or transferaminal approach. Great. All right. And then the, the other question, Marcus, sometimes questions on the in training exams or on boards will ask something like, you're performing a celiac plexus block, or they might even take it a step further and say you're performing a block for a patient with uh, pancreatic cancer-related pain, which would therefore be a celiac plexus block. And uh, which of the following is a potential complication or something like that? So I'm guessing since you're going uh, in the lumbar spinal area uh, that you may, if you were in the wrong, you missed, uh, you made a mistake, you could end up hitting the aorta. So you could have an intravascular injection or bleeding from that. Um, if you if you're put, depending on what you're injecting in there, if it went intravascular, you could probably get seizures. Um, are there other complications you'd normally think of is when you're consenting a patient for one of these that you say, hey, these are the risks here? Yeah, you bring up a really great point, and it's really pertinent to the care of our patients. So you mentioned a couple already. One is the aorta that is there, and if it's overriding uh, in particular, um, as we're coming in with the needle, you can get a bright red uh, flash of blood that's coming back. There is are some techniques where um, actually there's a transaortic approach that's been described where you actually go through and through the thick muscle wall. I know my eyes are getting big as well, yes. thinking about applying that to a number of patients, but um, certainly uh, not in every case are we trying to, trying to actually do that. Um, and certainly if you do get some blood uh, in terms of a return on the other side, you would not necessarily have it as brisk, and that certainly could come from the vena cava mm-hmm. um, that's there as well. Um, as we think about our anatomy in that region, um, we could probably start at our top and work our way down. So if we think about the L1 region and we're doing a celiac plexus block, what else is around that L1 space? Well, that commonly corresponds to where individuals' diaphragms are located. Mm-hmm. And so while um, it's not common for us to see a pneumothorax uh, as a result of a celiac plexus block, we certainly could have some involvement with the needle passing through the areas around the diaphragm. And depending on how flanked your needles are or and or how narrow the patient is, the kidneys are also in that area as well. Okay. Now, do we typically see kidney injury after these blocks? No. But if you're trying to trace out you know, a path um, in they present a CT scan to you and say, okay, on the path of this needle, what will pass through here? And you see, um, you know, heterogeneous uh, mass that's over to the side on both sides and the needle's going through it. Um, certainly the kidney is close in that territory and something we try to avi- avoid if, 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 we're, if we're able to. Um, as we work down, um, we are concerned about the diaphragm is a little bit less. Um, and in, in particular with the lumbar sympathetic blocks, typically it's still the vascular structures that are common to the celiac plexus block. Okay. Um, finally, once we come down even more with the um, hypogastric plexus blocks, um, what you'll see on some of the fluoroscopy screens, what gets in our way a little bit, can be the iliac crests. And these can just be humps of the bone that um, we end up having to tilt the x-ray machine to then get around. And it's that's more of an issue as opposed to going too far anterior and then getting into someone's colon or rectum area, right. um, which, which could be there uh, as well. Great. All right. That's really helpful. Let's move to our last question. Which of the following is true regarding pain and age? A, pain threshold increases as age increases. 
B, pain tolerance increases as age increases. C, different regions of the body, for example, the head and foot, demonstrate similar changes in pain thresholds due to age. D, different pain modalities, for example, heat and pressure, demonstrate similar changes in pain tolerance in older adults. So we're looking for which of the following is true. Take your pick. And Mark, let us know. Well, it's clear that pain changes as we age, and in particular as you go through life. And the correct answer here is A, pain thresholds increase as age increases. And we should probably unpack the difference between pain threshold and pain tolerance. And I think that's one of the reasons why this is a really high-yield question Mm -hmm. to those people out there who may have their uh, uh, ABA uh, board examinations that are coming up Mm -hmm. or just for general knowledge as well. So what's pain threshold and how's that different than pain tolerance? Well, pain threshold, right? You're sitting there listening to the radio. You need to turn it up a little bit because you say, I can't hear that. I can't hear that until you get to the threshold that the sound actually is perceptible by your ears. It's the same way with pain. You can have a painful stimulus and it needs to grow in intensity until it gets to a level at which you can recognize it as pain and perceive it to be pain. And that's what pain threshold is. So does pain threshold increase as age increases? Yes, it does. So if you are someone in your 20s or 30s and otherwise healthy, and we compare you to somebody who is in their 60s or 70s and otherwise healthy as well, which person is going to be able to sense pain at a lower level? Well, it would, you'd be correct if your intuition told you it would be the younger person who has who would be more sensitive to pain in terms of um, experiencing pain at a lower amount. Gotcha. So this would be why my daughters won't get in the bathtub even when it feels totally warm and not hot to me. This that, that could be a great example there. And certainly as children age, we have a number of changes that happen there. But they can be particularly sensitive and feel that um, some a stimulation is actually discomforting or painful when you as an adult or even your grandparent would not even be able to feel a sensation or that something is different. And so that difference there is called pain threshold. And at the, the, at the lower uh, stimulation that you can feel something, we say that you have a um, lower pain threshold right? And as, um, as your threshold goes up, you need more and more of that stimulation to then feel something. So, um, again, some stimulation that you could feel, perhaps your grandparent could not because they have a higher pain threshold. Okay. And then how's that difference from pain tolerance? Pain tolerance, right? So think about, um, people, you know, there's a version of the ice bucket challenge out there. It's not where you pour ice bucket, ice water on your head. It's where you shove your hand into an ice bucket Mm -hmm. and see how long you can last. Okay. This is actually an experimental way that we sometimes induce pain in the laboratory setting, right? Remind me not to go to your lab. There we go. I think uh, we're going to pay a trip or a visit right after (laughs) this, right? No, not quite. Um, But by putting your hand in that ice bucket, you're essentially testing your tolerance for how, how long you can sustain a stimulus that is painful. And so, again, if you ask yourself intuitively, if you're in your 20s, 30s, or 40s, how would you compare to someone in their 70s or 80s doing that ice bucket challenge of putting their fist in that ice cold water? Well, you'd probably be able to outlast someone. Now, I might not. I might be, you know, have, have quite a low tolerance. But that being said, the average person would be able to last a number of seconds longer on okay. average than someone who's older. And so for that reason, we then say they have a greater pain tolerance And um, essentially, pain tolerance actually decreases as people get older, meaning you have a lower pain tolerance 
um, at, if you're 80 or 90 compared to somebody who's an average 20 or 30 year old. Okay. Hold on. Okay. So Mark, so great. All right, that, that could be confusing because people I think would think these things are the same. So we're saying that it's cold enough water that it's, it's immediately painful. There is no, we're not, we're taking pain threshold out of the picture, right? This isn't about when it gets painful. This is already painful. And now we want to know how, who's going to pull their arm out sooner is it the version of me that's 20 or the version of me that's 80? And you're saying it's the version of me that's 80. That's correct. So once a painful stimulation has been perceived by the body, the ability to tolerate it then actually goes down as age goes up. Very tricky. So that would be, you could easily get tri- tripped up on a question with that. So you got to try to remember that threshold increases, tolerance decreases. Interesting. That's right. All right, so different regions of the body, uh, like head versus foot, demonstrate similar changes in pain thresholds due to age, and that's wrong. Why is that wrong? That's right. So different regions of the body actually have different changes in pain thresholds over time uh, as as people age. And so uh, which ones are more sensitive? Well, typically areas that have greater innervation are going to be more sensitive and demonstrate greater changes over time. And so where would those be? Typically your hands, um, your fingertips are going to have greater innervation than perhaps your scalp um, and other, other areas like that. Great. And then D was different pain modalities like heat versus pressure demonstrate similar changes in pain tolerance in older adults. Great. And here we do see, again, a diversity uh, of both heat, cold, pressure, electricity, chemical changes. Um, And each one of these has a little bit of a different profile in terms of um, how much they change over an adult's life. Great. All right, Mark. That's the end of our questions. This has been fantastic. Anything you want to add before we sign off? No, it's been a pleasure to be here. Mark, thanks so much. Appreciate you coming on. Have a good day. All right. Hopefully that was useful and high yield. A lot of great board stuff in there. Go to the website, ACRAC.com, A-C-C-R-A-C.com, where you can see this episode and all the others. And you can leave comments. Let us know what you thought, how this relates to what you do in your practice. If there are other things you think should have been covered or that you do differently, let us know. We can all learn from the comments that you leave. And, of course, you can sign up for our mailing list on the website, and you can get a hold of me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C at A-C-C-R-A-C dot com. If you're a fan of the show, take a minute, go to iTunes, and leave a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you are interested in helping support the making of the show, we always appreciate that. Go to Patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it would make a big difference and we would really appreciate it. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast and Dr. Mark Bickett, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't 
won't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. 